right. There's notes in the back. You can go to the website and get notes if you need them. Continuing Sermon on the Mount. Hi, Olivia. Good to see you. Um, it's good to have the chains back, too. So, um, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks just looking at the Lord's Prayer, which is in chapter 6 of Matthew. And today, we're just going to look at Matthew 6, 9. Um, in this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, it's, it's unfortunate how throughout history we've allowed certain scriptures to become more about some sort of rote recitation as opposed to the power that they have um, in, the, in the Catholic Church. When you go to confession, part of your penance is you say so many Our Fathers and you say so many Hail Marys. And this prayer has become more of some sort of, <clears throat> you don't even think about it, just make sure you say it right enough times and your sins are forgiven. And um, back in the 80s, I'm guessing, yeah, in the 80s, there was a, a guy named Larry Lee. Who, uh, who wrote a book called Could You Not Tarry One Hour? And it was, whole ministry is based upon understanding the seven lines in, in the Lord's Prayer and how to pray them. And so the context of this, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus teaching for the first time. In the book of Luke, it's the disciples coming to him and saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And in his instruction, the first thing he says, the first thing he states is, Our Father. He says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the first thing I want us to, to recognize here is Jesus didn't say, say Father or say my Father. He said, say our Father. So Jesus was already beginning the process of teaching his disciples and his followers how to identify with him as sons and daughters of God, Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being chained into the relationship he had. When he said, Our Father, he included those he was teaching into the relationship he had with his Father since eternity past and into eternity future. And so God is majestic, God is holy, and God transcends everything we know and have ever experienced here on earth. But in all of his grandness, in all of his greatness, in all of his sovereignty and his omnipotence, God is also personal, God is also intimate, and God is also loving. So when Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father, understand that Jews, when they spoke to God, when they spoke his name, I can't take you anywhere. Swipe down. That's okay. OK. 
Okay, say four Our Fathers and three Hail Marys. <laughs> So we have this, this picture that Jesus is beginning to help people understand that a relationship with God is different than what Jews had been taught all their life. Jews held such high esteem for the name of God that they wouldn't even include vowels when they wrote his name. They would only include consonants. So Yahweh, Y-A-W, um, they would take out the A and the E and it was just Y-H-W-H whenever they wrote his name. His name was so holy they couldn't write his name down. And so as we bear the name of his son, our Father in heaven is a statement of our commitment to hallow him. Now what does it mean to hallow? Hallow means to honor as holy God's name. So Jesus is saying when you talk, when you pray, the first thing you do is say our Father and understand that name is a holy name. It, it is a sovereign name. It is a powerful name. And so for Jews, God's name is so holy, as I said, they would only write vowels. They, the, but they had never addressed, it wasn't common for them to address God as Father. It was more common for them to address God as God, creator of the universe, the God of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we now, through Christ, when he taught us to pray our Father, we've been given a new position. And Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome, he says this, For you did not receive the gift of bondage, slavery again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So Paul takes us a little bit deeper than just beyond the context of God as Father. Because there is two different ways you address Father, there is there is the respect of Father as Sir, yes Sir, yes yes Sir. There's also that the intimacy of crawling up into his lap and saying Daddy. There's there's both sides of that, and so Jesus died, he rose from the dead, but then the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit comes when it says we begin the spirit of adoption. That's one of the names for the Holy Spirit. It's not a separate spirit floating around out there. It says okay. I'm a spirit of adoption, and I'm going to touch whoever gets saved. But it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a spirit of adoption, puts within our spirit, continuing the work of Christ. As we receive Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit works within us. And part of the revelation the Holy Spirit puts in our heart by the spirit of adoption is this ability, this understanding to see God beyond his greatness and his sovereignty, but also to see him as an intimate, loving father with whom we can have personal relationship um, in a way that is beyond expectation. I found, and, and just real quickly, I had so many notes. I'm going to do the second half of this on Father's Day, so I'm not doing the, the whole thing today. Uh, today I just want to talk about understanding God as Father. Um, on Father's Day I'm going to talk about how God sees us as Father, sees us as His children, the Father heart of God. But, but So we have this, you know, God wants to listen as a loving Father, but coming to him is an awesome privilege. Coming to him, we need to honor him um, with this privilege of hallowing his name, of worshiping him. And so Paul says, look it, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage. The spirit of bondage is what you and I were in. It is sin. It's what you and I were bound in before we came to Christ. And so Paul says, you're no longer bound. You, don't, you didn't receive a spirit of bondage unto sin, but instead you received 
the spirit of adoption by whom we're able to cry out a father. So bondage alludes to enslavement and sin, but this adoption, the Holy Spirit makes believers children of God. We are the children of God. And, and too many people do not let that sink in. Too many people don't fully understand the revelation of what it actually means to be a child of God. We understand childhood. We understand babies. We understand the, the preciousness. And, you know, I, I've said this before. It always amazes me the change in a woman the moment the other of the heart out of her womb. There is something of a heart that is knit together of the heart that is just unexplainable. And we see that, and we see this. You know, I remember when, when RJ, Ricky and Vanessa's oldest, was born, and we were there in Kansas City at the birthing center, and I wasn't in the birthing room. I mean, we're close, but we're not that close. Um, but so Ricky videotaped when Vanessa held RJ for the first time. And he sent it to us. And the moment they laid RJ on her chest, she just began to cry and to cry and to cry and to kiss and to love this one who had been inside of her for nine months. Something drastically changed in her life. And she's an incredible mom to all three of her kids. And there is something about parenthood that changes our heart. And we fail to understand that when we are birthed into the kingdom, when we say, Father, I recognize I'm a sinner who's been caught in the bondage of sin, but I come to you in the, to receive the freedom that is given to me through the cross, that at that very moment, the affection that, that I saw my daughter-in-law feel when her baby was placed on her chest for the first time is the very same affection God feels for you the moment you say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Come in and be Lord of my life. That, that same intimacy, but most people have a hard time seeing God in that perspective for a number of reasons. Fatherhood is the most messed up thing in the world today. There are too many men who have procreated children who have no idea what it means to be a father. And because of that, they have wounded their children. They have wounded their spouses. They have caused so much hurt. They, they have proven over and over again, this is not biblically, this is sociologically, they have proven over and over and over again, the lack of the presence of a father is the leading reason for crime and murder and drugs in our nation. It has been proven over and over and over again. Most young men who join gangs are looking for a father image. They're looking for somebody to... Nurture them however they're going to be nurtured. We, for whatever reason, in our humanness, have a difficult time seeing God as an intimate one whose lap we can climb up into, whose chest we can nuzzle our head in, who is longing to put his arms around us to say he loves us, to say he's proud of us, and to encourage us as we walk along and to pick us up when we fall down. Somehow we see him as one who instead has a whip, who says, get with it, be righteous, face with us because we failed and fall down. There's some sort of displeasure in God's face with us because we failed. And that is not how Jesus is saying we're supposed to see God. He said, yes, we're supposed to see him as holy. We're supposed to hallow his name. But there's also supposed to be this, this humbleness that comes upon us as we understand the intimacy that he feels toward us. Paul goes on to say, 
when he writes to the church at the Galatians, he says, and because you are sons. Now, he's not talking about sons of human fathers. Paul's talking to the church in Galatia, because you are sons of God, whose father is the same father Jesus taught us to pray to, that Jesus talked to. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So our childlike explanation, we are supposed to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, children have no problem when they are in a tough situation crying out, Daddy. Daddy, come and do this. Daddy, I've fallen down. Daddy, help me ride my bike. Daddy, watch me do this. I'm so grateful that my kids in the middle of the night when they were throwing up only knew how to say mommy. Um, that, was, that was one part I never had to deal with. It was great. They're over the toilet. They're just going, mommy, mommy, mommy. And I'm going, yes, yes, yes. Um, but there are so many other aspects of fatherhood that I love. Even to this day, as my kids are adults and have their kids, and some of their kids are old enough to soon be married and have their own kids. Um, but then my daughters still call me daddy. You know, my, my son's nickname, I had a nickname for all my kids. My son was Pal. And to this day, we're still pals. He still calls me Pal. I still call him Pal. So that intimacy of a father-son, of a father-daughter relationship and so this word Abba was a familiar term in this era, but it was not a familiar term in the context of God. It was a familiar term in that kids called their dads Abba. They called their dad Daddy. But it wasn't familiar in the sense that Paul, now again, Paul's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. When he writes to the Romans, he's writing to Gentile believers. When he writes to the church at Galatia, he's writing to Gentile believers. So they had a little different context growing up, not in a Jewish culture. But still, they had an understanding of God, even, even as they grew up in their mythologism and, and the mythology, I mean, and all the things they understood about gods. They were getting taught this whole new understanding of a person of God's fatherhood brought down to the intimacy of a papa, of a daddy. And so Abba is, 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 it's not playful, it's respectful, but it's intimate. And we only have one time in scripture where Jesus uses this phrase. Now on the cross, um, Jesus spoke seven times on the cross, said seven different things. The very first thing he said on the cross to me is, I think the first and the last things were the most profound. First thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, that word Father was not Abba. It was Petra. It, it, meant, it, meant, it was the reverent Sir, Father. Came in this omnipotence of God. The last word that Jesus said from the cross was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The same word. So he begins with forgiveness. At the end, he surrenders. Now, in the middle, he talks to God three times from the cross. The first time is, Father, forgive them. The last time is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The, the time in the middle that he speaks, he doesn't use the word Father. He uses the word God. He says, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Because something changed at that moment. When, when God was Father, when he says, Father, forgive them, there was still the fellowship of the Father and the Son that had been there from eternity past. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there was that passing from the temporary life of the human body into the eternal life of the Father. But in the middle, when he said, my God, my God, at that moment, when your sin and my sin was put upon Jesus, it was God who issued judgment, who issued his wrath upon his son for our sin. And at that moment, it was not a father judging a son. It was God judging sin. And our sin was put upon that Jesus. And so he didn't come to him from intimacy. He came to him from a human who was being punished for your sin and my sin. But the two other times he talks, he uses this term father. He doesn't say God. He says father. So even in the cross, there's intimacy. But in the garden, now you know he's already had the, the it's Passover. He's already had the Last Supper. He's already said, you know, one of you betrayed me. Judas runs out. Judas is about to come and betray him in the garden. So Jesus, after the Passover meal, after they've broken the bread and they drank the wine, he says, come on, guys, I'm going to go pray. Come with me to the Gethsemane. I'm going to spend time with my dad. And come with me and pray. And while we're there, he asks the, the core, Peter, James, and John, to come away with him while the others go. And, you know, Peter, James, and John fall asleep. But listen to Jesus' prayer. He said, he went a little further, Mark chapter 14, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, for the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So at the crossroad moment of Jesus' life to fulfill why he was sent, at that crossroad, mo crossroad moment of determining as a man, understand this, as a human being, Christ being fully man, he had the willful choice to go to the cross or to not go to the cross. So when he comes to his father, when he's saying, Abba, Father, he's saying, Daddy, Papa, I've come to this moment now, and I'm in this with you. I'm, I'm going to do whatever you want. But just in case there's another way you can do this, if there's another way you can save humanity without putting your judgment for them upon me, my vote is yes. I will take plan B. But... Daddy, it's not about my will. It's about your will. And so whatever your will is, I'm on board. So I, th I think we fail to recognize that when those soldiers showed up in the garden, Jesus, as being fully God, could have just waved his hand, knocked them all down, sent them all away. Being fully man, he submitted to their bondage. He submitted to their beatings. He submitted to their mockering, to their scourging. He submitted himself to the cross because of his love for his Father, whose love for us was so great that he sent his Son to bear our sin. So we need to recognize at this very intimate moment, it wasn't man crying out to omnipotent God. It was son crying out to daddy that 
I'm in this with you, but if I get a vote, I would vote for another way. But nevertheless, I'm going to submit to what you're doing. It's this, it's the same spirit that the Holy Spirit puts in conversation in the so many in the church fail to understand. That intimate moment of conversation in the garden between Jesus the Son and God the Father is the same intimate place and the same position the Holy Spirit by the spirit of adoption puts into our heart to where we, as Jesus said, Abba, Father, if there's any way, we can cry out, Abba, Father, for any situation in our life. And knowing that the same love and the same heart that God the Father had for the Son in the garden, wanting His purposes to be accomplished, God has the same heart toward you and I. He loves us to that depth, and in His love, He's saying to us, when we come and say, Father, I'm in a mess right now, and if there's an easy way to get out of this mess, my vote is yes. But what He wants to hear us say, nevertheless, not what I want, Daddy, I want what you want because you know best. And so that's, that's this phrase. And so the Holy Spirit Christ through us, prompting us over and over and over to actually connect together with God as Papa. I think one of the reasons we have a difficult time holding on to God as Father is because we are accustomed to talking to him, but we're not accustomed to listening to him talk to us. If in your prayer time, whatever it is, at day or night, whether you're journaling or talking, if you would, after you have journaled or you have read your scripture or prayed your prayer, if you would put your, 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 your book in your lap and hold your pen and say, okay, God, the next thing I'm going to write is what I'm going to listen for you to say to me. Sometimes you have to sit there for quite a while to get all the other noises out of your head, to get all the other distractions but the father who spoke to Jesus in the garden, the father who said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased when he was baptized by John the Baptist is the same father who says, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, my love for you is beyond word and I wanna have conversation with you. And God is just longing to talk to us as a father, not as some omnipotent, sovereign, you know, creator of everything, which he is through his intimate interaction with us, birthed in us to hear and to accept by the spirit of adoption, by the Holy Spirit. And so we go for the Abba revelation and relationship. We don't stand at a distance and say, God, we come into that close place. You know, this, this, the song we sang, this last song that Jill wrote, you know, um, where we just come into this intimate place of love and affection with the Father, God is longing for that with us every day. He's longing for that conversation. He's not like a father. Get this. God is not like a father. God is a father. There's a big difference. He's not an image of something. He is the image of everything. If, if dads want to know what a dad is supposed to look like, how a father is supposed to act, look at how God the Father loved his son. Look at how God the Father loved us through him. So in this process, 
God is working by the Holy Spirit, I believe, in this day and this hour to restore in our hearts the understanding of the first command. You know, um, Israel lived and walked by the Shema, which was the first command. It says, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. Then it goes on to say, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. You, you've heard it said, love the God. But he says, I also say to love your neighbor as yourself. And so God is in the process of restoring this with all his heart. And, and that's why until we fully embrace the fact that God loves us with all his heart. And, and that's why I love 1 John 4.19. The whole verse says this. And this is love. Not that we loved him but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation or a payment, a substitute for our sin. So at that moment, when Jesus is in the garden saying, Father, if there's any other way for this to be done, Daddy, if there's any other way for this to be done, God's response is, Son, I love them all as I love you, but in order for them to love me, they have to receive this love, and the only way I can demonstrate this love is for us to carry out the plan. They can't have fellowship with me because of their sin, because they're slaves to sin. But son, because we love them so much, as you submit yourself to the cross, as you submit yourself to my wrath and my judgment for their sin, they're going to understand the depth of my love. And if we can't comprehend that, we need to go back to that moment where we had the revelation that we needed a Savior, that we needed a Father. We need to go back to that moment where we had the realization and understanding that we indeed are sinners and that without Christ, we are nothing. In Hebrew, it's klim. We are klim. We are all nothing. The primary goal and assignment for us is to grow in love, to grow in meekness, to grow in revelation. This next verse in, in, in Revelation chapter 2. It's, to me, it's one of the more profound verses in... I'm always blown away, first of all, that Jesus says to the angel of the church, and it's Ephesus or... Pergamos or Philadelphia to the angel of the church right. I'm always kind of boggled by that thought. You know, what is the angel of the church Azusa? Who is that? What does that look like? And what would God say if he said, okay, write this letter? So the first letter that Jesus dictates to the angel of the church is to Ephesus. Now, if you remember in, in Acts 20, Paul is trying desperately to get back to Jerusalem. He missed Jerusalem for... Um, for, for Sukkoth, for the Festival of the Booths. Um, for, but he wanted to get back to Jerusalem by Passover. And so he's journeying back to Jerusalem, but he has this problem. He's lived in Ephesus three years. Those people are kind of like, they, they, they are knit together time for Passover. So he chooses to go south, to, to go around Ephesus, to go down to Miletus. And when he gets down there, he goes, okay, I'm avoiding them, yes, but I just, I'm never going to see them again, so I just want to see the elders of the church one more time. So he sends for the elders of the church. They come down to Miletus, and Paul says to them, okay, guys, I love you. This is the last time I'm going to see you. This is the last time. But then he says this, but I want you to be aware 
there are going to be people who are going to come in. They're going to give you false teachings. They're going to tell you everything I've taught you is a lie. I want you to be prepared, and I want you to stand against that. And it says they all gathered together, and Paul prayed, and they prayed, and they all cried together, and then Paul went on his way. So this is Paul in Ephesus, and this is about five to seven years before John gets his revelation to write the letter to the church at Ephesus. So it's about seven years since Paul had this conversation with the elders. Listen to what the angel of, of I mean, the, Jesus writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus. You have labored for my name. And he goes on and says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen, repent, or I will remove your lampstand. So if you read the whole passage, um, there is this group of false teachers called the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans taught a false grace that is being taught in the church today. And the false grace was, go ahead and sin, it's okay, because grace is sufficient to forgive you. And so the church at Ephesus had become so um, radical in stopping the teachings of the Nicolaitans that they'd forgot about love. They had become legalistic. They, they were more concerned with stopping false doctrine than they were about demonstrating the love of Christ. And so when he writes the letter, he tells them, remember, remember your first love. This is the message God is giving to us. This is the message Jesus is giving to us when he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying is, do not forget the whole premise of this whole relationship is not doctrine. It's not theology. It's not denominations. It is love. It is love. It is love. And Paul goes on and he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, guys, you're pretty zealous for a lot of the stuff. But remember, love is the key to everything. He says love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. We need to continue to remind ourselves that this relationship we have with God as Father is, is based upon a spirit of adoption which, whose premise is love. We are adopted because God loved us. You know, I'm, I'm part of a family where adoption has been a part of my life for a long time. I have adopted brothers. I have adopted sisters. I have adopted nieces. I have adopted grandchildren. And by adoption, I can tell you without a hesitation that my adopted brother, my adopted sister, my adopted grandchildren, my adopted niece are loved exactly the same as the birthed children. My mom and dad loved my brother Luke as much as they loved me and my brother and my two sisters. They loved Debbie as much as they loved me and they loved my brother and they loved my two sisters. My daughter Lenann loves Isaiah and Alina just as much as they love Tanner, Madison, and Mackenzie. There is no separation. There's not, you're adopted and I love you this way and I birthed you and I love you another way. They love them exactly the same. In fact, I heard this great story once and I don't know if it's true. But there were two sons who grew up together, and uh, their birthdays were about a week apart. And <clears throat> they, as they grew up, the dad and parents already always told them one of them was adopted, but they never told them which one. 
And finally, one day, the boys get old, and they come in, and they say, okay, Dad, we're just curious. Which one of us is adopted? The dad said, I forgot. That's how adoption works. Adoption is once we're adopted. So if we truly see ourselves as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, we need to have this revelation. God sees us as he sees Jesus. Let that sink in. God's fellowship and relationship with you is exactly the same as it is with his son, Jesus. Jesus is in heaven now, fully man. Jesus, when he took on skin, when he became the incarnation, when he was crucified and buried and rose from the dead, he was resurrected in his new body. He has that new body for eternity. So he who began a spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit into the womb of woman, when he, through the incarnation, became flesh and blood and endured every temptation we ever endured and suffered through death to the cross, he took on that for eternity. So when God is loving the Son right now, he's loving him as a person. Yes, his Son, the Spirit Son, but also God the Son, fully human, fully God. And God loves you exactly the same. And the conversations he has with his son are exactly the same conversations he longs to have with you. Here's the difference. Jesus is always talking to his dad and always listening. Jesus was on earth. You remember when he was brought before his accusers, you know, and said, are you God? He says, you've said it. I'm not going to. Are you God's son? You've said it. I don't have to say it. And then he went on to say, he says, look it. I only do what I see my father doing. How did Jesus see the father do what the father was doing? If you study the life of Jesus, everything he did, he started with prayer, he did it, then he went back and prayed. The only way you can see what the father is doing in your life is to come to him as my father in heaven. Holy is your name. And then we have this responsibility of obedience. When, when, we, when we come to our Father, you know, we, we walk in this way that there are, there are three kinds of obedience that we walk in. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, we pray this often. You know, you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. It says, with all the saints, what is the width, the depth, the length and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. See, when we know that love, we are motivated to obey God three different ways. First of all, there's affection-based obedience. And that's motivated by the satisfaction in Jesus because we see ourselves, we see the Father through Jesus. We see sonship through Jesus, and we recognize that's how our sonship and our daughtership is. So obedience that flows from experiencing Jesus' affection for us, he gives them back to us, we experience them with the Father. So we obey the Father because we love him. We obey the Father, we are faithful. Understand, when we stand before the Father, we are rewarded for faithfulness. We are not rewarded, here's the good things you did, here's the bad things you did, let's shake them together, let them stand. It says everything we done will be tested by fire, so the stuff we did that had no value, it's going to be burned up. 
But the stuff that is gold, silver, and precious stone, doesn't matter how hot the fire is, it's going to stand. And we're going to, and God loves the smallest of faithfulness. He says, because you are faithful in the little things, I'm going to make you ruler over many. God is just looking for children who say, Daddy, I want to obey, I want our success me to do. The problem is man bases our success on the magnitude of what we do. We think the bigger thing we do, the more esteem we have. So if we can cure cancer, God is surely going to set us on the throne. And yet he says, if you want to be great, be a servant. And he's going to see the one who goes and feeds the poor people every week and cries with them and prays with them. He's going to see that as a greater accomplishment than curing cancer. See, we can't measure the magnitude of our life based upon the, the measurements of man. We measure the magnitude of our life based upon the measurements of Jesus. In, in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 26, there, there's something very key there to understand. So many people mis, misplace that scripture and they see it as the judgment of people. He puts the sheep on one side and the goats on the other, and he brings the goats up, and he says, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. You know, I was, I was alone, and you didn't care for me. And they said, well, when were you? you know, we never saw you. How would we know? You know, and he says, as much as you don't do it to the least of these. Here's, here's the thing. He doesn't say people. He says nations. The sheep and the goats are nations. He says, then he will gather the nations. He doesn't say people. He's going to gather the nations. And on one side, he's going to put goat nations. On the other side, he's going to put sheep nations. And nations are going to be judged for their heart. That's why I think this nation has such incredible blessing from God. As, as messed up as we are, we are still the one who cares for the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, the, 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 everybody throughout the world, we are still considered to be the, the nation that cares for those. There are other nations that if, if you have a certain birth defect, they just kill you. You know, if you're hungry, they'll let you starve to death. They, they will do all sorts of things. And so we need to understand affection-based obedience. He says affection-based obedience is foundational to Jesus' life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. This is what Paul says about the life of Jesus. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, but put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Even now, Jesus still subjects himself to God because he loves God. It's affection-based obedience. Everything Jesus does, he does have obedience to the Father. But then there's also duty-based obedience, which is biblical. You know, we, we have duty. We have responsibility as believers, as followers. You know, God's word requires that we obey him even when we don't feel inspired to do so. I'll be the first one to tell you, there are days I read my Bible when I would much rather watch Netflix. And I just, let me get through this. Let me just get the mountain reading. I'm going to get done today so I can say I've done it, stamp it, and get it done. Sometimes prayer's that way. Sometimes I start to pray and I can think about, you know, <clears throat> Are the Dodgers going to win tonight? Are they not going to win? Um, you know, 
What are we going to have for dinner tonight? Well, I can begin to think about all kinds of things. And I'll just press through and feel like I haven't done anything. And my prayer didn't get any higher than the ceiling. And that's, that's duty-based obedience. God honors that. He, he loves the fact that I show up. Even though I may be distracted, he loves that. And so don't ever disqualify that. Don't think because you just showed up and you're not feeling it that somehow you failed. Because you didn't. Sometimes wandering minds are okay with God. Then there's also fear-based obedience, which is actually shame-based obedience, which is not biblical. You know, there is no shame. There's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so many times, you know, it flows from the, the fear of the negative consequences of our sin. And so... You know, it's, it's, it's not biblical, but it's enough to try and motivate us to resist the pleasures of sin. But because intimacy is not tied to it, more often than not, we fail. It, it is love that wins. It is not fear that wins. It says perfect love casts out fear. It doesn't say fear overcomes perfect love. And if you are struggling in any temptation in your life, if there's something you feel like you do over and over and over again, you just need to know the freedom from that sin flows out of love. It does not flow out of God's condemnation. It doesn't flow out of some sort of fear that what if somebody finds out. It flows out of a love that says, I'm willing to let anybody find out just so I can walk in freedom. And God's love demonstrated through them can, can move my heart, can motivate my heart. So we sin when our heart is unsatisfied with our Father. I want to say that again. We sin when our heart is unsatisfied with our Heavenly Father. Now just let that think in, sink in for a moment. Follow that logically. Think about that rationally for a moment. Because if we fully understand the power and our walking in the power of love. We are not enticed to sin. I love um, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with alcohol and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. When we are motivated by something other than love, we are willing to settle for something less than great. We're willing to settle for mud pies as opposed to the goodness of God. And so it, it says this, John 15, this is, you know, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Guys, the, the key to everything is love. When we say our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name, 
if that is not motivated by deep affectionate love because he loves us first, then we are setting ourselves up to fall short because somehow we believe that our, our, our love, God's love for us must be earned, must be merited. We must do something to merit the type of love we long for when the reality is it's already been done. There's nothing we can do because Jesus already did it all. There's no doing. It's all dunning. That is a word. I just made it up. <clears throat> so, and understand that God doesn't confuse, and really get this in your heart, God does not confuse immaturity with rebellion. God understands we're weak vessels. God understands each one of us are struggling with something in our life and we're trying to get beyond it. The difference between immaturity and rebellion is this. Immaturity is trying not to fall, but we fall anyway. Rebellion is choosing to fall, is choosing to sin. And so God doesn't look at those who are trying to walk toward him and who stumble on the way, who in somehow trip up, but we pick ourselves up and we come back to him and go, Dad, I blew it again. He, he loves that. What he doesn't love, he says, you know, one of the things God hates is those who run to sin, those who willfully choose to commit immorality. There's nothing worse, listen closely, there's nothing worse than struggling with the same sin and getting to the place where you say, I give up, what's the use? I can't win this battle, so I'm just going to give in. It's just going to be a part of who I am. That is a lie. That is a lie. God understands immaturity. God's grace is sufficient for immaturity. His grace is not sufficient for willful sin. So we need to continually walk in that. And, and you know, Jesus tells the, the story of the prodigal son, which we'll talk about more on Father's Day, but the, the heart of the, of the story of the prodigal son is not about the son. It's about the father. It's about how the father loves both sons. And, and you know, I, I've, I've heard it said, and, and it's a sad story, that there are those who are raised in the church who have believed Jesus is their Savior since they were six years old, and somehow they feel they're less than because they don't have some vile past testimony that says, I've been set free. Look what I've come out of. But, but instead, they've been raised and nurtured. And that's kind of the picture of the prodigal son. You have the one son who's been the good kid all his life. And it feels like the one who rebelled and squandered everything gets more reward, gets more recognition than the faithful one. But the father says, you don't understand. Everything I just gave him was already yours. It's always been yours because of your faithfulness. And so we need to understand that Jesus wants us to understand how God feels compassion over the repenting prodigal. And, and, and so, you know, our father enjoys us even in our immaturity. If you know the story of, which you should, but you know the story of when Saul's trying to kill David. And so David's got his warriors, and he's running away, and he's really tired of always looking over his shoulder, trying to see where Saul is. And so <clears throat> he's out here in the wilderness. He's near Gath. Now, Gath, if you remember, is where um, Goliath was from. The Philistines are there. So he doesn't want to go hide there. So he goes to this little city called Ziklag, and he hides there. 
and, and he hides there with his men simply because he's weary, and he doesn't consult God and say, God, should I do this? Should, should, I, should I go to Ziklag? He's just hiding from Saul 30. The Amalekites come, and they sneak in, and they attack at Ziklag, and they take all of David's army's wives and children, and they take them off as prisoners. They don't kill them. They take them off because they're going to make them their slaves. And so David, who has not inquired of the Lord for about three years, he's just been doing his thing, hiding from Saul with his band of men. He goes before the Lord and says, okay, God, what do I do? And God, in his great mercy, gives him and says, just go get your family, go get your guys. And so if you read the story, they come to this creek. There's 600 of them. They come to this creek. It says 200 of them are so weary that they don't have the strength to cross the creek. And so they said, we're not going forward, so they stay. So David and his 400 men go, and they defeat the Amalekite army. It says David, David um, rescues his two wives, which I don't know how you handle that, but rescues his two wives and his kids. Not one, not one of those who were taken captive lost their life. Okay, so David, three years of not calling upon God, trying to solve his problem his own way, forgetting that the reason Saul wants to kill him in the first place is because God has anointed him to be king, forgetting all of that. David then cries out, and when he writes Psalm 18, this is what he says. He says, he delivered me because he delighted in me. So even though in his weakness, in his immaturity, and in his rebellion, trying to solve the problem his own way, he says, when I turned to God in the midst of that turmoil, he said, he rescued me because he delighted in me. That's how we need to see that in our weakness, sometimes we make dumb decisions because we don't ask God. Sometimes we do things that when we come back to him and we say, okay, daddy, I've got myself in a mess here. You know, David basically said, what if I do, God? You know, I've, I've tried to solve this myself and now all the women and children are gone. What am I going to do? And God says, got you covered. You know, and in his, in his mercy... He delivered me because he delighted in me. We need to see God like that. So we, we can have a, a new beginning with God every time that, that we repent. You know, Lamentations says, Though the Lord's mercies are not consumed because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So... For no better word, this is a Mike Bickle term, but we push delete and we move on. Because here's the great thing, and, and, and it's, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around this. The Bible says when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It also says that when we repent of our sins, God removes them from us as far as the east is from the west, and what? Remembers them no more. So when you say... God, I know I repented of this yesterday, but I'm still feeling really bad about it. He's saying, what are you talking about? What I, he says he doesn't remember. He, that, that's how far, that's how complete our forgiveness is. God doesn't have a secret notebook in his back pocket. You know, when you stand and you go, yeah, well, look at how many times you've come to me about that and asked forgiveness. So, buddy, you're just about out. No more. It doesn't remember. It's like each time you come to him is the first time. Let that sink in. Each time you come to God in your weakness to ask forgiveness, it's like coming to him the first time. Because he removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. And the reason it says east and west is not north and south, because north and south have a beginning. 
East and West don't. No beginning, no end. So once they start getting separated, there's no way they're ever going to touch again. Your sin will never touch you again once you have been cleansed from unrighteousness. And once we are cleansed from unrighteousness, then we are righteous. And because we are righteous, we have full access into the throne room of the Most High. And we can crawl up into his lap and say, Daddy. And he says, I love you, my child. Because of the righteousness of Jesus put upon us. Mm. Uh, um, okay, I'm just let's jump down to point C on number four. It says the Father gives to our heart by how much we hunger for relationship with him. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So, as deep as our hunger in is, that is the depth of our satisfaction. If you hunger a little bit, you're satisfied. You hunger a lot, you're satisfied. So, in that context, God honors the value we put on relationship by giving us more according to our spiritual hunger. So we have to come before him in hunger to receive what he has to offer. You can't just walk and hope somehow it falls on you and, and you just get under it in the right place. To hunger and thirst, think about it. When you're hungry and thirsty and you're home alone, do you go sit in your chair and wait for it to fall in your lap? You get hungry enough, you get to the point where you're going to go to the fridge and you're going to do something. You get thirsty enough, you're going to go, and you're going to get a drink of, of water. And, and Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you're hungry and thirsty, when you come to God, however deep that hunger, however passionate that thirst, God's going to satisfy it. And so, and he does that as a father. So Jesus says this. He discloses himself to us based on our responses to love and desire for him. This is what Jesus says in John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus says it's a package deal. You love me, you love the Father. And when you love me and you love the Father, we come to you by his word and we make you our habitation. We make a home with you. And so that, that's the whole, you know, false religion is, is harsh. False religion says you have to do this, this, and this. I don't know why it is, but ever since... Trader Joe's has remodeled in San Dimas. Jehovah's Witnesses are out there every single day with a table with a man and a woman on each side of the table, and they have a big banner that says, Know the Word of God. And they have a Bible there, and then in little letters on the bottom it says, The Jehovah's Witnesses. But every day you're there. And so I, one day I said, Okay, I'll engage. But they are so knuckleheadish, I just couldn't handle it. And so I walked away. Here's the deal. 
they don't know of the Word of God. They know the Word they've written. And because they don't know the Word of God, they don't know God. And because they don't know God, they don't know love. And because they don't know love, God has not made them their habitation because they don't walk in righteousness. Theirs is a harsh religion. You have to work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, be rejected, be rejected, be rejected, and maybe you'll be one of 144,000. Maybe. That's not grace. That's not love. Jesus... <clears throat> Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Cast all your cares on me because I care about you. You know, when, when, when Paul tells us, he says, look it, I've got this thorn in the flesh and we're not going to discuss what we think that was to keep me humble. It, the Lord said it was, it was a spirit sent to buffet me to keep me humble. And the Lord said, Paul, in your weakness... I've made you strong. My grace is sufficient for you. And, and I just, I want you to focus on that for a moment. Why would Jesus have to say to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you? What enacts grace? Sin. He said, Paul, look it. This is going to bother you the rest of your life, and you're going to fail. And just know that when you're weak and when you fail, I'm strong. And my grace is enacted as you come to me in repentance. So just know God allows certain things in our life. You have always heard it said, don't pray for patience because if you do, you're going to get nothing but turmoil because that's the only way you learn patience. I, uh, I have this prayer I pray every day, and that is I ask the Lord to increase my faith, not my patience, my faith. And when I'm thinking faith, I'm thinking I, I if you got cancer, I just want to lay hands on you. I want you to get up and walk out. You know, if, if you're blind, I want you to see. But for me, when I ask that prayer, it, it's not about, he doesn't give me more faith and, and deal in the issue of that. He always takes me to finances. And, and wants me to say, when there's nothing, am I going to try and figure out myself how to work this out? Or am I going to trust him to keep his word? And I'm, and I'm always reminded, you know, of, of, of the story of, 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 um, of Balaam. You know, when he's paid to prophesy against Israel, and every time he opens his mouth, he prophesies for Israel. And when the king confronts him and says, I'm paying you, buddy. I'm paying you a lot of money here to prophesy my victory. And he says, look, God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said, will he not do? I'm reminded every time, God doesn't lie. God's promises are yes and amen. So does my relationship with him go based upon the balance in the checkbook, or does it go based upon the promise of his word? And so as I've prayed for faith, that's the place he always takes me. I wish he would take me to... People saying, come play for my blind, my blind child. As long as I have money in the bank, I'm good. I'll go pray for your blind child. But, you know, it's, it's, it's this, that, that's the place he takes me when I pray for faith. But that's what love is. You know, and so this, this, I just want to focus, lastly, again, to not forget. He just didn't say, Father in heaven, and then move into, 
you know, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. He says, our Father in heaven, he said that we are then to acknowledge holy is your name, hallowed is your name. I don't think we can ever forget. I mean, if, if you have the picture of heaven in, in, in Revelation chapter 4, you know, it says it's got these four living creatures with the six wings. And, and what have they been doing for all eternity? Falling on their face, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the eternal antiphonal song, you know, uh, who was and who is and is to come. And this holiness means he is totally separate from anything that is not holy. Holiness is being totally separate from anything that is not righteous and clean and pure and just. Everything about God is all of that. And that's all they say about him. And I'll read A.W. Tozer <clears throat> out of the knowledge of the holy. He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know. Infinitely better. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart. It's unique. It's unapproachable. It's incomprehensible and unattainable. Only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the Holy. The only way we can ever say, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, is that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us because of salvation. And he reveals the holiness of God to us. It is, it is the great mystery of the ages. Holiness is the very core of the character of God. And we need to make this a priority of what we learned. You know, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only the holy can enter into the presence of holiness. But here's the thing we must always remember. It is not our actions that make us holy. It is the blood of Jesus that makes us holy. It's nothing we can do. It is the confession of sin and the washing of the blood of the Lamb that makes us holy that allows us to enter into holiness and to crawl up into his lap and say, Abba, Father. And so, so how do we pray? Jesus says, whenever you pray. Now, this is my challenge to you. From now on, every time you pray, start with this phrase. My Father in heaven, holy is your name. Now let that sink in for a moment and just understand what you're about to do. You're about to have a conversation. Meditate on that before you ask a single thing. Meditate on that before you ask God to open any door or to accomplish anything. And as you do, you'll soon find yourself, instead of, like so many people do, we think prayer is telling God what we feel we're supposed to do and asking God to partner with us to accomplish it. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer is coming into Daddy's lap and saying, Daddy, what are you doing in my life? I want to do it with you. And you can't know what he's doing if you're not saying, Father, holy is your name. And the next phrase we'll look at next week, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you <clears throat> that we can say that word, that we're not just 
speaking it out of some sort of rote response that we were taught to do in Sunday school. Father, Father, what an incredible opportunity. What an incredible privilege. Father in heaven, your word to understand your name. Thank you that you give us your word to understand. Thank you that you gave the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, to stir our hearts in such a way that we don't have to come before you in such awesomeness that we feel that there's nothing we can do. We can't even lift our heads up, but instead by the spirit of adoption, as sons and daughters of the Most High, we are able to say, Abba, Father, and to come out of intimacy and to see what you're doing and to move in harmony with you as your kingdom comes and your will is made manifest in our life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you as the spirit of adoption will ever make aware on our hearts this privilege of adoption to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Set your seal on our heart, O God. May this truth never, ever escape us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, as Jill would say, but Jill's not here. All right.